0: Well, friends, uh, if you would turn in your Bibles, please, uh, to First Chronicles, chapter 27. It's good to see uh, you with your Bible. If you don't have one, we have some that are available for you there. Uh, look, you should have your own Bible. If you don't have your own Bible for some reason, then take one of ours. That's what they're there for. We want to make sure everybody has their own Bible. Uh, because truly, uh, Jesus said, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word which proceeds from the mouth of God. So in the very same way that you get up every day and you eat, you know, your your breakfast meal or your two or three meals throughout your day or whatever it may be. Uh, you need to do that with the Word of God. So you have to have your own Bible. Um, so please, if you don't have one, take one of ours. We've been going first by first through the Bible. We're now in the book of uh, First Chronicles. Art, did I turn this back on? Okay, good. We're now in the book of First Chronicles, chapter 27. So please go ahead and turn there. Let me read verse 1 to you. It says... This is the number of the people of Israel, the heads of the father's houses, the commanders of thousands and hundreds, and their officers who served the king in all matters concerning the divisions that came and went month after month throughout the year, each division numbering 24,000. Now, as we've been going through uh, maybe chapters 23 through 27, we've come back to a section of the book with lots and lots of names. And essentially what David is doing, just a reminder in case you... Uh, have forgotten. What David is doing is he is organizing the nation, if you will, one final time prior to passing off the scene. David is either at or close to 70 years of age. He's going to die in his 70th year, uh, and he wants to make sure that the system in the, is in place for his son Solomon to very easily easily, and very comfortably come in and take over. So that's the purposes of chapters 23, 24, 25, 26, and 27. This particular chapter, so we've already seen his Uh, focusing on who the priests are going to be, and who the treasurers are going to be, and who the Levites will be, and so on. This particular section of chapter 27 is going to deal with the military leaders. So we're not so much talking about the leaders of the temple right now. Military leaders are going to be the leaders of Jerusalem and of the entire nation. So we're kind of expanding outside of just the temple area, which we have focused on for the last bunch of chapters so chapter twenty seven one if you look at the keyword of chapter twenty seven one or keywords there's a lot of words that are written there but if you kind of narrowed it down to commanders and officers that's what this first section is going to deal with are the commanders and the officers and as we're going to see, there would be twelve different commanders that are selected, and each of them would lead a division. A division has twenty four thousand men in it We'll learn about that and the division would come and it would uh, keep charge over, keep control over the city of Jerusalem. So you come in for once a month. So, let's take a look here as we move into verse 2. Verse 2, the first group that is listed there, the leader of that is the first word. It's a fellow by the name of Joshua Bien. And it says, now Joshua the son of Zabdiel was in charge of the first division in the first month. In his division were 24,000. And it goes on from there. 24,000 men that he would be in charge of. Now, it says the first month, and if you're like me, you naturally think that's the month of January. You know? So it's winter time, and this guy's in charge of that. But the Hebrew calendar, it's a good time to bring it up, runs differently from our Gregorian calendar that we work off of. Uh, the Hebrew calendar, the beginning of the year, actually starts uh, in the month of March. So it's the springtime, which is the start of a new year. And it, but it doesn't begin on March 1st, like our calendars, March, April, May, June, everything begins on the 1st. So if you want to compare it to our calendar, their first day of the year would roughly come in around March 15, and the month would run to about April 15. Okay? That makes sense? And then the next month is April 15th to May 15th, and so on. So the very first month for the Hebrews is uh, what is called the month of Nisan, or Nisan, uh, which looks a little bit like Nisan if you have one of those vehicles there. Uh, but it's the month of Nisan, okay? So ben he's the leader uh, during the first month. Now, the passage also tells us that he is, notice there at the end of the the verse, it says that he is a descendant of Perez. Now, we know about Perez from other portions of scripture, particularly in the book of Genesis. Perez comes from sort of a sordid uh, beginning, if you will. Sort of a Jerry Springer type show is how he came about. And you can read that story if you would like to. But I really appreciate this fellow Perez. Because even though it does come from sort of this, oh my goodness, how'd that happen? That's how you came to be? That's something. Should that be in the Bible? I don't know if we include stories like that in the Bible. Uh, You can go back and you can read it there in the book of Genesis. But what I want to draw your attention to is in the book of Ruth. In the Book of Ruth, great story, many people love the Book of Ruth. A lot of women like the Book of Ruth more than men, but I think it's a manly story. I appreciate it. Uh, Thank you. Uh, (laughs) And in the Book of Ruth, as you move toward the end of, in the very last chapter of Ruth, you have a genealogy. I think the book even concludes with that genealogy. And in the genealogy, it says this. It says, Perez, that's the fellow we're talking about, he fathered Hezron, who fathered Ram, who fathered Aminadab, who fathered Nashon, who fathered Salmon? who fathered Boaz, Yay, Boaz. <coughs> who fathered Obed, who fathered Jesse, who fathered David. And we all know who David is, and David is sort of like, David? You, he gave. He was like the grandfather, great-great-grandfather of David? That's pretty cool, because David is sort of like the hero of the nation of Israel. And I love this, I'll just throw it in, I've said this kind of before, is that even though he comes from a very uh, inauspicious background, and you look at it and you're sort of like, dude, I don't don't know if we should talk about where you come from. God nonetheless says, I'm going to work for you nonetheless. You're a trophy of my grace. We talked about that a little while earlier. So using the genealogy in the book of Ruth, we take notice of the fact that he is this fellow, (coughs) Joshua, is also from the same line. He's from the tribe of Judah, and he is from the same line as King David. Now, the second leader, verse 4, introduces us to a fellow by the name of Jodei. And we're not going to spend too much time on each of these names, but you can see that Dodei is there during the second month, 24,000 people he is in charge of. The third commander is a fellow found in verse 5 by the name of Benaiah. And as you're going to see when we come a little bit later in the chapter to verse 14, there are two different guys that are named Benaiah. So this Benaiah is Benaiah the son of Jehoiada. This particular Benaiah, Beniah the son of Jehoiada, it tells us in our verse that we're looking at, that he was one of the thirty. It tells us. Now we read about the thirty in First Chronicles chapter 11. Remember, the thirty were sort of David's Navy SEALs. They were his elite fighting men. Uh, they were the mighty men that it's called in that passage. And Benaiah was one of those. And I really like this guy Benaiah. We don't. Does anyone know anything about Benaiah? outside of, you know, our time here together. Just Josh does, because he's a Bible scholar who went to Bible college, apparently. And so most of us don't know anything about Beniah. but Benaiah is a cool dude. Benaiah is a guy you look at, and you're like, man, I want to be a Benaiah, even though I don't know much about Benaiah. So let me remind you a little bit about this fellow. Look at 1 uh, Chronicles 11. I think we have it up here on the screen. It reads this way. You may remember this story from when we were in that chapter. It says, now Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, he was a valiant man. That's a characteristic of him. He was a doer of great deeds. He struck down two heroes of Moab. He struck down an Egyptian, a man of great stature, five cubits tall, five cubits cubits a foot and a half, so that's about seven and a half feet tall. He went out there and took care of that fellow. The Egyptian, you may recall the story, said he had in his hand a spear, like a weaver's being, but Benaya he went down to him with a staff and he snatched the spear out of his hand. So you may recall the story I shared where Benaya he comes out like Popeye and he comes walking out there. And it reminded me, I told the story before, but it reminded me of a softball game where I was at, where a guy was standing at the plate with his baseball bat and he was taunting the pitcher. And he was standing there taunting the pitcher because apparently the pitcher came a little too close to him with that six to 12 foot arc pitch and he was upset about that. And so he's standing there and he, he's basically challenging the pitcher. And I remember a third baseman, not even the guy being challenged, a third baseman, that said, you shut up, you shut up. He went back and forth, the pitcher and the batter, and finally said, will you make me shut up? The batter did. And the third baseman said, I'll make you shut up. And he came walking down like this, and he snatched the bat out of his hand, and he talked to him. And he explained to him that this behavior was unacceptable. <laughs> that reminds me of Beniah. He's standing there, and here's this guy. It reminds me of David. When David goes down to deliver lunch to uh, his brothers there, and here comes this uncircumcised Philistine that has the nerve to speak these things, blasphemous things about the God of Israel. And David's like, no one's going to do anything about this? Well, Benaiah was that sort of a god. And so here you have this Egyptian there, and Beniah goes, he snatches the spear right out of his hands. It continues the verse that says, These things did Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, and he won a name beside the three mighty men. So there's a group of 30, and then there was a group of three. Beniah was not one of those three, but most people thought of him as one of those three. It says that he was renowned among the 30, but he did not attain to the three, and David set him over his bodyguard. So he's a secret service agent, and he's the lead secret service agent. This is Beniah. We also read about Beniah in 1 Kings. In 1 Kings chapter 1, we have the story of what happens... <coughs> either at the very last closing days of David's life or just after David died. Now remember, David had many sons. He didn't just have Solomon to pass the kingdom on to. He had a whole bunch of sons. Some of his sons had already died, but others were still living. One of those that was still living was a fellow by the name of Adonijah. And Adonijah is older than Solomon. Solomon's only about 20 years of age. When Solomon would go on to become the king or be uh, crowned to be the next king, David would say of him, you know, my son is, is young, he's inexperienced. He was a young guy. 16, 18, 20 years old or so, he's going to become the king. Adonijah is probably 40, 45, 50, one of the elder of the sons, and he thinks, I should be the next king. So in 1 Kings chapter 1, we read that Adonijah, uh, it says, Now Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself. He said, I will be king, if it was only that easy. And he prepared himself chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. Appearance sometimes is just as important as anything. And he gathers these 50 men to go running before him, and he conferred with Joab. Now, Joab is the secretary of defense. Joab is the military guy in David's kingdom. That's a key fellow to win over to your side, isn't it, if you want to go on to become a king and have a coup. And so he confers with Joab, the son of Zariah, and with the priest, the high priest of the nation, who's a very influential fellow in his own right. And they followed Adonijah, and they helped him. And they, they essentially go... And they have a coup, or they're going to try to have a coup. But what, as it pertains to Benaiah here, look at verse 8. Because I think verse 8 of 1 Kings, not, not where you are in 1 Chronicles. 1 Kings, stay with me. Think like I think. You know? <laughs> I think you would. But in 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 8, it says, But Zadok the priest, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, as well as Nathan the prophet, and Shimei and Rei and David's mighty men, they were not with Adonijah. All right, so that tells me a little bit about the character of Beniah, but also the loyalty of Beniah. Interesting, if you look at verses 9 and verse 10 of 1 Kings chapter 1, there it says they didn't even go and bother and ask Benaiah. It's not like they went to him and said, hey, you with us? They said, no, I'm sorry, can't be. They wouldn't even bother asking him, because they knew he would say no anyway. And look at verses at uh, the end of there. They said, but they did not invite Nathan the prophet, or Benaiah, uh, uh, or Beniah the mighty man, or Solomon His brother. They don't even go out and invite him because they know that he's not going to be a part of it. But he is one of these men. Joab was a part of that rebellion. We read in 1 Kings chapter 4 that when Solomon does become the king, he can't keep Joab as the secretary of defense. He can't trust Joab. And so Joab is off the scene. He's replaced by, and guess who they put in? Verse 435, it says, The king put Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, over the army in place of Joab. So he goes on to become, if you will, the Secretary of State for the uh, defense, I should say, for the nation. Now, moving on from this Binaya, we move to verse 7. Notice in verse 7, it says it speaks of a fellow by the name of Azahel. Azahel is the fourth commander. If you notice, though, it says, Azahel, the brother of Joab, was the fourth. I like that, also. Because Joab just was involved in a military coup. But who's held responsible for it? It's not Joab and all of his brothers and sisters and his mom and all these sorts of people. It's Joab. And Joab will have to pay the consequences of his own sin. But there's still this place where Azahel can go on he can become commander. I appreciate that. So he's commander of the fourth division. Verse 8 tells us a man by the name of Shamhuth is the commander of the fifth division. As you move on to verse 9, you have a guy named Ira. Now, Ira doesn't sound to me like a military commander. It sounds like a sports writer. You know, it sounds like a a lawyer or something like that. But this Ira, he goes on to be the sixth commander, uh, as you can see there. So in the sixth month, verses 10 to 11, and 11, you have the commanders of the seventh and eighth month. You have a guy by the name of Hales in the seventh and a guy by the name of Sibakai in the eighth month. And then finally, in verses 12 through 15, you have the, the names of the commanders for the ninth through the twelfth months. Verse 12 gives us Abiazar, he's the ninth, Verse uh, 13 gives us Mahorai, the 10th. There's a second guy named Benaiah. He's in verse 14. And then finally, a uh, fellow by the name of Heldai, who is in the 12th month. And these 12 men, they would lead. Now, they, they would only lead for one month out of the year in Jerusalem. So they'd be on active duty, if you will, as David's Jerusalem army. One month out of the year, they'd have the 24,000 men. And then the rest of the year, they would go back to wherever community they're from, wherever it is that they live. And and they'd sort of be like in the reserves, if you will. So David would always have, Solomon would always have a standing army of 24,000 men at the ready, uh, in case something happened in the city of Jerusalem. And he would always have the ability to gather 288,000 trained, ready to fight, if need be, men as well. And that's a pretty sizable army, 288,000 uh, trained individuals is a pretty sizable army for ancient days, even today I would say. Anyway, as you move on, look at verse 16, as we move from uh, the military leaders, as we move on to verse 16, we're going to be, and you can see it in the first couple words that over the tribes of Israel, we're going to talk about the tribal leaders. Now remember, there's one nation of Israel, but the nation of Israel, up until the time of essentially the Babylonian captivity in addition to being one nation, it was essentially comprised of 12 tribes. And each of those tribes sort of saw themselves. In many ways, if you will, you want to compare it to with the United States of America, but we have the 50 states. And there's unique things that go on in each state, Uh, but there's also commonalities amongst us. And so they have the 12 individual tribes. Now, each one of those tribes was given a specific portion of land scattered around the nation. And in that land, that state, if you want to call it that, they would have a leader over it. That's what this particular section is going to deal with. Now, remember, the nation of Israel is named after a man who was born, Jacob, who would have his name changed to Israel. And all of his descendants are the people that make up the nation of Israel. Now, Israel, the spell of this man, I'm going to call him Jacob, and then I'll use the word Israel for the country. All right. So Jacob had, you may recall, four different I will put wives in quotation marks because, again, it's a Jerry Springer show Uh, when you look at it there. uh, The first woman that he married, he didn't really want to marry. He thought he was marrying her younger sister, and she had a veil on her face, and when he woke up the next morning in the daylight, he realized, you're not the one I wanted to marry. But he was already married, and it was just tricky, so he figured out a way. Can I please still marry the younger sister, too? That's the one I really wanted. Uh, So that's how he got two of his wives. How he got the other two is even more complicated. But the name of these women are Leah, Rachel, Zilpah, and Bilhah. I bring that up because the order that you're about to see the names listed are based on the women and the children that each one of those women had. So he had 12 sons. His first wife, if you want to call it, well, yeah, she was a wife, was Leah. And Leah gave birth to Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, And Not necessarily in that order. They weren't the first six kids. But they were the six uh, boys that were born to this woman, Leah. And if you look at verses 16 through 19, what you see is that's the order that they're named. So you have in verse 16, over the tribes of Israel for the Reubenites. It was a guy by the name of Eleazar. Skip a little bit. For the Simeonites, that's from Simeon. Shephatiah. Verse 17, for Levi, Hashabiah. verse 18, for Judah, Elihu, one of David's brothers, and so on and so forth. And so it goes through those six boys that were born uh, to Leah. Now, if you move on to verse 19, the second woman here that gave birth to children was a woman by the name of Bilhah. And Bilhah gave birth to two sons. One of them is Naphtali. And you see there in verse 19, Naphtali is listed there. The other one that she gave birth to was Dan. Now, Dan, for whatever reason, breaks this pattern, and Dan's not mentioned until the very, very end in verse 22. Don't necessarily know why, but Dan was the other brother that was born of this woman, Bilhah, or son I should say that was born of this woman, Bilhah. Moving on to verses 20 and 21, his third wife, if you want to call it that, uh, was Rachel. Rachel was the one that he really wanted from the beginning, Uh, but she, uh, nonetheless, her name is Rachel, and she gave birth to two boys. She gave birth here well, as you can see here, notice what it says is Ephraim and Manasseh. And She gave birth to a Jacob, uh, to Joseph, I should say, uh, initially, and a guy named Benjamin. But here you can see listed, it says Ephraim and Manasseh, as well as the name Benjamin. Let me read verses 20 to 21. It says, now the Ephraimites, Hosea, the son of Azaziah, for the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joel, the son of Padiah, for the half-tribe of Manasseh, in Gilead, Edo, the son of Zechariah, and for Benjamin, Josiel, the son of Abner. And then he goes on and talks about Dan, Dan Now these three sons, if you will, quote unquote, Ephraim, Manasseh, and Benjamin, they were the result of his union, as I said, with Rachel. However, Ephraim and Manasseh, they, you wouldn't properly call them today, at least, sons of, uh, of this union here, but you would call them grandsons. All right? and it's not uncommon, though, in the scripture when someone is referred to as a son, It doesn't necessarily mean they are directly the son. It could be a great-grandson or a great-great-grandson or something like that. But Ephraim and Manasseh, they weren't actually sons, they were grandsons. Israel's actual sons are Benjamin uh, and Joseph here. And Joseph fathers two boys, Ephraim and Manasseh. Now Joseph, you may recall from our study of the book of Genesis, he receives a double portion of the blessing. So it's one man, but he's going to get two allotments of land. And the way they did that was by giving a portion to Ephraim and a portion to to Manasseh. Now, as far as Manasseh is concerned, our verse here in 20 and 21, it mentions half tribes. And the only reason why Manasseh is divided in half, as we looked at in previous weeks here, is Manasseh, the people of Manasseh, they decided that, some of them decided, we want to stay on this side of the Jordan. We don't want to cross over. We don't want to to go to the Promised Land. This particular area is good enough. So half of the tribe of Manasseh stays today in what is called the nation of Jordan or back then, the area of Moab, and the other half of the tribe, they went into the land. And so they are referred to as the half-tribes, half-tribe of Manasseh. If you look at our verse here in verses 20 and 21, you'll notice it says, for the half-tribe of Manasseh in Gilead. Gilead would be that portion outside of Israel, that portion in Moab, or today what is called Jordan. And then as you move on to verse 22, to just wrap up this section having to do with the tribal leaders, It says, Now these were the leaders of the tribes of Israel. David did not count those below 20 years of age, but the Lord had promised to make Israel as many as the stars of heaven. And Joab, the son of Zariah, he began to count, but he did not finish. Yet wrath came upon Israel for this, and the number was not entered in the chronicles of King David. And that's a reference back to what we looked at in chapter 21 when David insisted. That Joab go and count how many people are in this nation. Take a census. Now, they, as we've said before, they've taken censuses—that's a word—before uh, in the nation of Israel. But in this instance, Joab was very clear: Don't do it. This is a bad idea. God's going to bless you beyond your imagination. You don't have to count the people. Uh, and for whatever reason, Joab was insisting, "Don't do it." And David would later agree that this was sin. There was a great judgment which came upon the nation of Israel, and it stopped the counting of the people. So there were some of the tribes, tribe of Levi, and I believe the tribe of Benjamin, that weren't even counted at all. Um, but that's what's being referenced here in this particular passage. You may recall, as it pertained to the counting of the people, David said in chapter 21, I have sinned greatly. So it was clearly outside of the will of God. We don't know why, because they counted other times. It could be from a place of pride, It could be from a place of a lack of faith. I need to know how many I have so I can decide if we're going to go into battle. Uh, Who knows exactly, but it was wrong, and David was judged, and the people were judged as a result of that. And that's what's being referenced in those couple of verses there. And then finally, starting in verse 32, I should say, I think, no, 25, excuse me, so not finally, in the next section uh, we have, I'll just read it to you. These are various officials, all right? Not much comment on it, I'll just read it to you. It says, now over the king's treasuries was Asmobeth. He was the son of Adiel. And over the treasuries out in the country, uh, you see there, in the cities and the villages and in the towers was Jonathan, the son of Uzziah. And o- over those who did the work of the field for tilling the soil, that was Ezri, the son of Chelob. And over the vineyards was Shimei, the Ramathite. And over the produce of the vineyards for the wine cellars was Zabdi, the Shipmite. Over the olive and sycamore trees in the Shephelah was Bel-Hanan, the Gedorite, And over the stores of oil was Jewash. Over the herds that pastured in Sharon was Shitri the Shironite. And over the herds in the valleys was Shaphat, the son of Adlai. Over the camels was Obiel, the Ishmaelite. And over the donkeys was Jehadiah, the Miranite. Over the flocks was Jeziz the Hagrite. All these were stewards of King David's properties. Okay, that'll change your life, hold huh? on. Uh, think about. look at verse 32 verses 32 through 34 this is the final portion of the chapter and this gives us the names of David's kind of right hand men this is his senior staff these would be the, the chief of staff uh, for instance there you can read in verse 32 it says that Jonathan David's uncle was a counselor now remember David had a really good friend named Jonathan that was Saul's son that's not who we're referring to here it's just another fellow with the same name that fellow passed away he died previously Um, Here, though, David's uncle was a counselor. Being a man of understanding, he was also a scribe. He and Jehiel, the son of Hothmaniah, attended the king's sons. Ahithophel was, and the key word you might want to underline there is was, because he rebelled against David in the last days as well, uh, particularly, I guess, against Solomon, um, so he would be removed from that position. But he was the king's uh, counselor. And Hushai, the archite, was the king's friend. I'm not really sure what that means necessarily, but he was the king's friend. I have friends. You know, I guess I'll list them in my obituary. Uh, Ahithophel was succeeded by Jehoiada, the son of Benaiah, and Abiathar. Joab was commander of the king's army. Again, underline the word was, because he'll lose that position himself. All right? Now let's move on to chapter 28. We're not going to look at this entire topic today. We'll look at a portion of it. In chapter 28, we're going to see that David charges both the people of Israel, the congregation, as well as the, new, the next to be king, Solomon. And he charges them in regard to their service in the kingdom after David has passed off the scene. David is very concerned. And, and you know, sometimes when there's a transition of power, sometimes the, the person on the way out, sort of deep down there's sort of a hope, you know, I hope things kind of fail after I leave. Then it'll kind of show how good I was as a leader, how important I was. That's a terrible way uh, to walk off the scene here. And it's been said that the the real mark of a a good, strong leader is how the work continues on after that they're off the scene. And David here was very much concerned about what the nation would look like and how it would thrive and continue when he was no longer the king. So in chapter 28, we're going to see that David is charging the people and King Solomon, or the soon-to-be King Solomon. Now, you may recall, especially if you've been with us, just about two months ago, we, didn't we already do this? You know, I thought we already had a charge to Solomon and the people. We did. That was in chapter 22. If you go back and you look at chapter 22 and chapter 28, much of the charge is the exact same thing. However, there is a key phrase in chapter 22 which distinguishes these two things. In chapter 22, David's primary goal was to charge the nation and, King, and Solomon to build the temple. That was what he was really encouraging them to do, exhorting them to do. Here, if you look at verse 8 of uh, chapter 28, you'll see that what he's primarily concerned with now, yeah, he's going to talk about the temple a little bit, but what he's primarily concerned about is full possession of the land of Israel. No more compromise. and No more living amongst the foreigners, if you will. No more, you know, this is good enough. We're content here. He wants them to have a full possession. So verse 8, we'll read it. Now, therefore, in the sight of all of Israel, the assembly of the Lord and in the hearing of our God, observe, seek out all the commandments of the Lord your God, the result, that you may fully possess this good land, and leave it for inheritance to your children forever. Now, I guess it would make sense. I shouldn't have read that, but I guess, why don't we read verses 1 down to verse 80. But that's his goal, full possession. Now, starting in verse 1, this is what he says, and this is what happens, I should say. It says, Now David assembled at Jerusalem, And all of the officials of Israel, the officials of the tribes, the officers of the divisions that served the king, the commanders of thousands, the commanders of hundreds, the stewards of all the property, and the livestock uh, of the king and his sons, together with the palace officials, the mighty men, and all of the seasoned warriors. So let's just test here, assess. Where would we find the names of those people? Last chapter, chapter 27, chapter 26. The last six mm-hmm. weeks of our studies together is where we learned those names. Take your time with your Bible. Think through the words you're reading. Don't just kind of glaze over and, and read through. But, you know, interact with the word. And so that's what all those names were listed there before. And so chapter 28, 1, he assembles all those people. Verse 2. Then King David rose to his feet and he said, Hear me, my brothers and my people. I had it in my heart to build a house of rest for the ark of the covenant of the Lord, and for the footstool of our God. And I made preparations for building. Another name for that? The temple. A right? the, the house for the ark of the covenant, and a footstool for God, the building, that would be the temple. But God said to me, you may not build a house for my name, for you are a man of war, and you have shed blood. Yet the Lord God of Israel chose me from all my father's house to be king over Israel forever. For he chose Judah as leader, and in the house of Judah my father's house. And among my father's sons, he took pleasure in me to make me king over Israel. Now, you might read that, and you might think, you know, he's sort of gloating there, necessarily. But that's not the tone that David is sharing. Part of the reason we know that is from how he responded in other places in the Scripture. So he's not being sort of, like, boastful. And he picked me, and he was a good choice. It's more of this, you know, of, of all the tribes, he chose to pick Judah. And of all the people of Judah, Joseph, and Jesse, and of all my sons, for whatever reason he chose to pick me, there's a there's a place of great humility in the words that he's sharing. Verse five. And all of my sons, for the Lord has given me many sons. Now that might be a little boasting. Uh, he has chosen Solomon my son to sit on the throne of the kingdom of the Lord over Israel. And he said to me, "It is Solomon your son who shall build my house and my courts. For I have chosen him to be my son, and I will be his father. I will establish his kingdom forever, if he continues strong." in keeping my commandments and my rules as he is to this day. We already read verse 8, and let me just conclude with verse 9. He says, And you, Solomon, my son, know the God of your father, and serve him with a whole uh, heart and with a willing mind. Now, as I said, these two chapters are very similar to chapter 22, chapter 28, chapter 22. If you look at 28.2, there's again, remember, referencing the fact that David wanted to build a temple, but God said no. So verse 2 in this particular story, chapter 28, is where he he reminds us that it was in his heart to build a temple. And then in verse 3 that God said to him, you're not allowed to. You may recall from our study back then that when David wanted to build that temple, God had told him no, but he didn't tell him why. He just said, no, you're not going to be the one to do it. And David had to take that information, take that... uh, you're not allowed, and be okay with that, and to move on with that. And we saw that David responded extremely well to that. We also saw in chapter 17 of First Chronicles that after God told David no, he went on to say, David, you're probably feeling pretty bad right now, is my own words, but you're probably feeling really bad right now, you need to know this. Though I'm rejecting your offer to build me a temple, I'm not rejecting you, David. And I got great plans for you, David. I'm gonna accomplish great things beyond your wildest imagination. So remember chapter 17, it said, Thus says the Lord, I took you, David, from the pasture. You were following sheep, and you were a young kid, and I made you to be the prince over the people of Israel. David, I will make a name for you, like the names of the great ones of the earth, and when your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, that is, when you die, I will raise your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his throne Forever, Ultimately, we know that that will be fulfilled in the person of the Lord Jesus. Jesus, a descendant here. All of this is confirmed again for us. That's confirmed in verses 4 through 5. We'll read it again. Yet the Lord God of Israel came to me. He chose me from my father's house to be king over Israel. And he chose us to be leader and so on and so forth. Now, as far as David's desire to see the temple built, God confirms to David the temple is going to get built. But it's just not going to be built by you. It's going to be built by another. And I, I wonder if God, if, you know, during that little quiet time when they were wrestling with David and God, were just sort of like, you know, David more so is, God, I just don't get it, I don't understand, I'm so sad, whatever it may be. I wonder if during that conversation, if God would say something like this to David. David, is it okay that somebody else builds the temple? You have it in your heart to build a temple, but it's not going to be you. Are you okay with the fact that somebody else will be able to accomplish that? think about it this way, because I think this is a real test of his motivations. Think about it this way. Think about if for years we as a congregation were crying out for God to bring bring revival to our community, that many of the lost would be saved, and it occurred. But it was occurring in a different church. How would you feel about that? How would you respond to that? It'd probably be a little bit like the students. are the ones that were crying out praying. But if David, if it is in your heart to see this temple built, will you be content that somebody else built it. It's a real test of his motivations here. And David's response to it, not so much in words, but in his actions, was, that'll be fine, just as long as the work of God is accomplished. And so David responded so incredibly well to this. It's such a lesson that we can learn from this man, that when God told him no, how he responded to that. Something I want to learn. Now, as we continue into the final verses of our section today, David is going to exhort both the leaders and Solomon, as I've said. Verse 6. In verse 6, David essentially is saying to all of these leaders, everyone, you see this man standing next to me? And he was barely a man. He was 20 years old. You see this guy that is standing next to me? He is the next king. Does everybody here understand that this guy here is not only my pick, but that he is God's pick to be the next king? Again, verse 6. God said to David, it's Solomon your son, not just one of your kids, but specifically Solomon, your son, who will build my house and will be the king. Now, you might think, oh, I I guess it was a piece of cake. Well, secession to the throne, not just in Israel, but in ancient days, as in some parts of the world today, was not so cut and dry. You know, when you think about the United States of America, it still amazes me the transition of power that we have in our nation. I remember back in 2001, I went to the inauguration don't get too excited, I was one of the millions that gathered there. It wasn't like I was invited or anything like that. But I, I went to the inauguration and, and I made my way up and I'm kind of like uh, two miles away from the stage looking at the jumbotron. And there the most interesting thing occurred because there you had President Clinton who was about to leave. You had pre- the second President Bush uh, and you had the other Bush who was standing there as well. But you had the second President Bush who was about to take over power. And you look, just two different parties, but most intriguing to me was standing over Bush's shoulder, just behind him a little bit, was Vice President Gore, who Bush kind of sort of beat, if you recall. And, And you remember just the whole hairiness of the whole scene? And it was just chaos for a period of time. I think we didn't find out who the president was going to be for like a month or so. And yet here they all were, just sort of gathered up there, and there was this peaceful transition. It was crazy. Well, that's not the way that it typically tended uh, to happen in ancient days. There was typically a struggle, a power struggle. And David is trying to cut that off of the past. Despite David's admonition to the audience there, the leaders, there was still a power struggle, which we'll read about when we get to 1 Kings. But nonetheless, David charges the leaders. And the first thing he says, look, you to honor Solomon as you have honored me. And his second charge to them, we read the words in verse 8, was that they fully possess the land. Now, we discussed this just a little bit last week, so we'll come back to it again here a little bit. But to fully possess the land. You may recall that there were those three tribes, two and a half tribes, that said, you know what, this area here is good enough for us. We're contentious to stay over here. And God's desire, God's intention for the people of Israel, just as his intention for you and I, is that our Christian walk, or these people living in the land of Israel, would never just settle at good enough. I'm content. It's not great, but it's certainly not bad. I'll take this. That's not what God wants for us. He wants us to fully possess everything that he desires for us in a walk with him. Intimacy of relationship and so on. For that full possession to be realized, though, this becomes key, then these people have to go on to the next step that we read about in verse 8 here, and they're going to have to heed, if you will, the second charge. So again, let me read verse 8. It says, Now therefore, in the sight of all of Israel, the assembly of the Lord, in the hearing of our God, Observe, seek out all the commandments of the Lord your God that you may possess this good land and leave it for an inheritance. You want to fully possess the land? Well then here's how you do. Here's how you'll get to the place where you're fully possessing the land and that is that you observe and you seek out all the commands of the Lord. And when so you, you seek them out and then you keep them. How many of us know people, men, women, children, young people, they, certainly, they want God's blessing on their life. They want to have a dynamic walk with him. They want to have a walk with God that is alive. Not just some, like, thing that's in a book somewhere that doesn't really mean much to me. And, you know, what, what is it I believe, Mom? You know, you believe this. And so, oh, okay. That just has no impact on who they are. But they want to be walking a walk every day where they know that God is alive. They know that God is able to communicate with them, not so much audibly, but there's just this sense that it's me and God going through this together. It's me and God driving to work. It's me and God plugging through my day. It's me and God dealing with the family uh, issues and struggles. and it. They just want to have this sense of his presence in their lives. They want him and all of his fullness, and yet they either make no, no effort to keep his commands, or they pick and choose which commands they're going to accept. And if we make no effort to obey the commands of God, then you're never going to get to the end result. If the end result is you want to experience a full blessing with God, you're not going to get there if you're not keeping his commands. And so here you are, you know, you're dealing with all the strife of the fist fight that you just got into. And why did you get into the fist fight? Well, let's go back and look at what led you to that place. Well, what led you to that place was the way that you responded to such and such and such and such and such and such. Well, God had commanded, you know, when that guy struck you on the one cheek, turn the other cheek. But you decided, I'll not turn the other cheek. I'm going to do what I want to do. And now you're dealing with all the strife of the fistfight. You understand what I'm saying? You keep his commands, you'll experience his blessing. I love uh, World Magazine. Many of you guys know World Magazine. It's a great uh, publication. that comes out, I think, once a month, once every other month. And there's a woman that writes in there, Andrea Sayow. She just got married again. Peterson, I believe her last name is now. Uh, and she's just a columnist, and she just writes about everyday things. And she is a thinker. I believe the women's ministry is looking to bring her in to come and speak here. Um, and I, I love her insight into things. And she addressed this particular issue uh, essentially. And I'm stealing her stuff from for you, if you will, but she essentially addressed this. If you if you want the blessing of God in your life, then you've got to follow what he says. And so we can't pick and choose which commandments we're going to heed, which are going to be okay for us. And yet we do, do that oftentimes, don't we? That doesn't apply anymore to our day. Or yeah, I probably shouldn't, but whatever, I'm gonna anyway. It's a bad decision. God's word is very clear. He says in Jeremiah chapter 21, you shall seek me and you will find me. When you search for me with all of your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord. Now, I think our journey with God, this might sound a little strange, but I think our journey with God, I think you might compare it to, if you will, a series of unlocking doors. And so you're walking down this path here and every hallway, so to speak, that you're entering into, there's a locked door. And you unlock the door through obedience. And so, you know, sort of standing on the other side, it's one of these, well, if you do this, I'll let you in. And so you're sort of like, yeah, I'm going to obey in that. And I'm not talking about legalism and all this sort of stuff. I'm just talking about obedience. And so, you know, Lord, I'm going to obey you in that. And then the door opens, and you go a little deeper in your relationship with God. You understand him a little bit more. But when we ignore those commandments, and we think, well, is there another hallway that I can sort of get to where I want to get to, but I don't have to obey that specific commandment? Well, what happens is the door, if you will, stays locked. And you stay there, and your walk with Christ sort of, it stagnates a little. And the result is, to go back to the metaphor that I'm making here, is we fail to fully possess the land that God has for us to possess. So David's charge to the leaders is essentially this. When God directs, you need to listen. And you will see his blessing. Sometimes listening is hard, sometimes obeying is hard, but do it, and you will see God's hand of blessing on us as individuals and as a nation. In Jeremiah chapter 29, God reveals his plan, again, not just for the nation of Israel, but for us. And he says, I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for wholeness, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. God wants what's best for us. God wants to bless us with an intimacy of relationship. God wants us to fully possess our Christian law, all that it was designed to be. But in order for that to happen, it's required that we submit our will to his will. I forget where I was reading this, but some book was awesome, so I recommend it. I think it was, not Anyway, I was reading some book. If you can find it, it's really good. <laughs> in there, he was talking about, uh, it was called Follow Me by David Schroeder. And in there, he was talking about the call to uh, Peter and, and the other fishermen or whatever, the call to them to come and to follow him, follow Jesus. Now, Jesus was not a fisherman. He was running from that particular community. And he goes to these guys and he said, how was fishing? Well, how would you appreciate it if you fished all night and called nothing? How would you like that question coming your way? Well, the question comes, how was the fishing this particular evening here? And Peter's like, not so good. And why don't we just drop it, all right? But Anyway, and so Jesus goes in and he starts teaching the people. And there, Peter and his brothers, and they're sort of cleaning their nets, but they're not really, they not really cleaning, uh, they're, they're just sort of cleaning their nets there, and, but they're really listening to what Jesus has to say. And Jesus says to Peter, you know, you should go back out again and try it again. Now, Peter's an expert in fishing. Peter's worked all night. Peter's tired, Peter's frustrated. Who's this guy telling me to go back out there again? But his response is so interesting, because his response is, he said, we're tired. We've been out there all night. But because you say so, I'll go out, I'll do it. And that's the sort of heart that God desires that each of us have in our relationship with him. I don't feel like obeying. I don't want to obey. Nobody obeys. Why should I obey that? But because you say so, I'll do so. And it's in that that Peter experienced the most amazing blessing that his life. What if Peter at that point said, No, I don't think so. Try to find somebody else? He would have missed all that God had for him. But God had great desires for him. Now, next time when we gather together, Lord willing, we're going to finish the book of 1 Chronicles. Okay, yeah, and excited. We made our way through this whole book. Uh, so the next time we go... So I'd encourage you to read through the rest of chapter 28 uh, and certainly chapter 29 in preparation. Try to anticipate. This is what I do for fun, uh, personally. It, it sort of helps me process uh, the text in anticipation of getting my heart ready to receive the Word of God. I'm talking about when I'm sitting as opposed to when I'm teaching. Um, but I try to anticipate what maybe the speaker's going to share on what, what points he's going to go in, what direction he's going to... I sort of try to write my own little sermon in my mind. And it, it just helps me sort of prepare to receive what God has for me. So a little technique that I use, uh, that you might want to do as you read the rest of 28, chapter 29. And we're going, we'll gather again next week and we'll finish the book. That's Father, we are incredibly grateful for uh, Lord, your commands. So, Lord, sometimes uh, we put a burden on them, but Lord, we know that your word teaches us that your commands are not burdensome, that your yoke is easy, your burden is light. And so, Father, we, uh, we just need a right thinking of the mind, so to speak. have to approach these things appropriately, knowing that you have a great plan and you want to bless us incredibly. And Father, I pray this day, certainly this next week, that we would take the word of God that we've heard this morning to heart. Lord, that you would shine your light on areas of our life that maybe uh, we're standing behind a locked door and unable to move forward because we have yet yielded, we've yet submitted in that area. And Father, I pray that in that, that the word's uh, that we've heard this morning, but for me as well, certainly from your Holy Spirit as you were speaking to our hearts, would really bring us to a place of choosing you. I love those words choose ye this day whom you will serve. Lord, you call all of us to that same place on a daily basis. And so, Lord, we want to be a people that are diligent about serving you, about seeking after you. Because, Lord, we know that in that diligence, in that obedience, that we find you in a way that we never would have been able to find you before. And that's the desire of our hearts, is to know you and to walk with you. So Father, pour out your spirit of blessing, I ask, this week on each of us. And use this us in the lives of other people, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.